the Humanity Church podcast, a place where meaningful conversations around living by faith, being known by love, and becoming a voice of hope are shared with the world every week. We hope that you enjoy this podcast and will join us live on Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, online or at the historic Fox Theater in beautiful downtown Pomona. We also host humanity groups that meet all throughout the city and online to continue the conversation and support you in your ongoing spiritual journey. Find one near you by visiting humanitychurch.com. If you would like to financially support this podcast or the ongoing work at Humanity Church, you can text any donation amount to 84321 and give directly from your phone. Now, here's this week's podcast. This is our very last week in our conversation that we've called Love Thy, where we've been taking a look at the scriptures that inform us who we are called to love, and more importantly, why we are called to love them. And so we've been examining this whole world here. And so we talked about loving our neighbors and why loving our our neighbor as ourselves is so critical. We talked about loving our enemies and how our enemies are not just the bad guy out there, but they are those who have forgotten who they are. And we are called to be those who remind them of who they are all around us. We are called to love our unlovable neighbor, a.k.a. our annoying neighbor, a.k.a. the number, the neighbor that we have lots of judgments about. And so when we press past our own judgments, we recognize that that person over there is just a reflection of who we are over here. And so pressing past that allows us to reframe even how we see ourselves and the world around us. Last week, we talked about loving our orphan and widow neighbors. And all of these call us beyond our own preferences, how we would prefer the world to be, how we would prefer prefer the world to to be. See, because human being actually has a default when it comes to love. And our default is actually to make our world as small and comfortable as possible. Now, that is human default. And look, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that is the operating system that you were born into. And so our tendency is to say, how can I make my world as comfortable as possible, as small as possible, so I don't have to deal with anything that inconveniences me in the world? In many ways, our default state is like water. We choose the path of least resistance. Whatever is the path that is the most easy, that involves me not having to work very hard or do much or engage my own inner demons, let's do that path. And so in that, we choose to love those who are like us, and the scriptures simply say, It doesn't really matter if you love people that are like you. It doesn't really matter if you love people who are on the path of least resistance. That doesn't mean much. Because here's the thing that I know about you is that you were not actually made to play that small. As a human being, you were actually not designed to limit your world to a few people that are just like you. In fact, what I know about you because you were made in the image of God is that you were made to expand your influence. You were created to expand your world and to connect to as many people as possible within that. And in that, if we are committed to being those people, we are to be a sacrificial people. And at the end of the day, love looks a lot like sacrifice. Because when we are willing to sacrifice to love, it expands our impact on the world around us. And so today, we're going to talk about the last group of people that the scriptures call us to love. Actually, a group of people that the scriptures talk quite a bit about. So let's pause this morning and pray before we jump in. Jesus, as we conclude this conversation, not this way of living, God, I ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to what it means to expand our influence, to expand our reach, to expand our worlds beyond what's comfortable to us. 
That we would be those who sacrifice for the sake of those around us, recognizing that our willingness to love goes far beyond our own satisfaction, our own preferences, our own wants. But it is the material that you work with to transform hearts and to change the world. So I ask that you would expand what we see possible today. That you would expand the borders that we bump up against, that we're unwilling to cross, to reach for the other. God, that we would be those who see others through a new lens and engage the world through a new heart and that we would be transformed in the process. So I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I love in life is when I get to be in an environment where I am the only white Westerner. <laughs> I actually love it. I, I, love, uh, I love this. And this is one of the reasons why I loved growing up in Southern California because there's so many opportunities for that. I love finding myself in restaurants and stores and environments that I technically should not be in by society standards. I like being in places where I'm the only one who speaks English fluently. I like being in the place where the only one who has no idea what's going on around me. And, and this is what I love about growing up in the environment that I grew up in. I love it's, that, it's the environment that my kids are going to grow up in. I love having foods from different culture and being around different practices and ideas and, and languages and even different family structures and, and how people operate within different ethnicities and different cultural backgrounds. My first job was a youth pastor in a church that was primarily, primarily Latino, and, and I was known as the white boy in the church. In fact, I was just called that often, and it was, it was kind of like a, a mark of pride for me, <laughs> being, being the white boy in the community. And, and what I loved about that is I, I was like surrounded by a rich community of Latino culture and food and ways of being, and I found all kinds of new traditions. And, and I, I feel that at times I'm a chameleon, that I can find myself in, in Indian supermarkets, and I can find myself in Chinese restaurants, and I can find myself in parties where I'm the only one who speaks English, and I feel right at home. But there, there are all these moments in these environments, uh, usually for like a few seconds, where I have this moment of terror. And the moments of terror, usually when it comes time to order something or to eat something in a certain way or there's something culturally going on around me that I have no idea what's going on and I panic because I don't know how to operate in the environment. I, I don't know what everyone else is doing and so I feel so out of place. It feels terrorizing in that moment. I remember when I lived in Tokyo for a season and I was invited into this home to have a dinner with this family who was very prestigious in this small village that we were visiting. And I went to dinner with them and their extended family and I was eating my food and I remember halfway through the meal, I'm eating the rice, I'm eating all the food that they cook me and I stick my chopsticks in the rice bowl. And instantly everyone looks at me like, what's going on? And I was like brand new to the environment and so I knew instantly I had done something wrong. And then I found out later on that that was basically saying, your rice is awful, I don't want to eat this anymore. It was like a huge insult and I had no idea. And it was, it was mortifying to know that I had sent that communication to them. Because no matter how much I love being in those environments, no matter how much I love experimenting with culture and food and language and practices and family structures and experiencing the diversity that the world has to offer me, I know that those spaces will never truly be home for me. That no matter how much I engage, no matter how much I give myself to them, they'll never truly feel like home in that moment. They, that may sound silly 
to some of you, being that like this is my dominant culture. But the fact of the matter is, is that we have all tasted what it feels like at times to be the outsider. We've tasted at times what it feels like to be in environments where we're uncomfortable or where we're the different one or where we're the one who feels out of place or where we're the one who feels like, yeah, this is cool and I'm enjoying this and I love the privilege of being in this space, but it does not feel like home. See, because for many of us, we can easily slip back into our own comforts, right, to our own practices, to our own environments, to our own communities and go, oh, I'm home now. But for many people, that isn't the case. Imagine that being the dominant experience where they're often the outsider and have a difficult time finding home or finding a place where they belong or finding the place where this is my people. And the scriptures actually talk a lot about this community that we are called to love. I'm going to read a few passages where where it explicitly talks about this. In Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 19, it says, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, which we talked about last week, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. You were to love our, um, and you are to love those who are foreigners. For yourselves, you were foreigners in Egypt. Exodus 23, 9, do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. Jeremiah 22, 3 says, this is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do not wrong or violence, uh, do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. See, the word here is translated foreigner, but it's actually a much bigger umbrella word that we ought to use when we're talking about this. The, the other word that's oftentimes used is sojourner. And sojourner literally means a stranger, an alien, or a foreigner. To live among a people where there are no blood relatives. And these are people who oftentimes left their land and found themselves now as a foreigner in a land that is not their own, often because of war or famine, to seek residence in another place. And the result was they had less rights than the general population They weren't able to own land. They weren't able to work in certain situations. They had to navigate very carefully around the political structures that they found themselves in. And because of that, they were often the population that was taken advantage of because they were easy to take advantage of. They became easy targets. Now, we certainly have foreigners in our land, immigrants that have come here for various reasons that reside in our communities. But I actually want to broaden this definition because I actually think this is the heart of what the scriptures are talking about here beyond just the immigrant. It includes the immigrant, but it includes anyone in our community who may feel like a stranger in a strange land, who aren't a part of the dominant culture that we live in. And so this includes everyone from sexual minorities to to cultural or ethnic and racial minorities to different languages, to those of different marital statuses, to gender. And these are those who may have a hard time finding home in the world around us. Now look, I know that when I immediately say this, the room grows a little nervous, right? It's okay, you can feel it. (laughs) And I know there are some of you that in your head are going, oh no. Are we that church, right? I can feel that. And there are some of you who are going, yes, I knew we were that church, right? And it's interesting how we go to these places. It is such a difficult time to have a conversation about this because really the only space to have conversations about the outsider, the marginalized, the overlooked is in the context of partisan politics, It's very difficult to have this conversation outside of taking sides. 
of how we have this conversation. Our, our culture has very little room for nuanced conversation right now. Have you noticed that? It's interesting because this is actually a very human conversation that every single one of us have experienced, and yet there are populations around us who experience this on a regular basis, and it is incredibly multifaceted. And it's easier to put this conversation into two options. Which party has the better argument for how to deal with these people? And look, in life, because we're like water and we like to choose the path of release resistance, we will oftentimes simplify things down into smaller choices. Because look, what's easier? To walk into an ice cream shop and if they only offered you chocolate or vanilla, that, that, that decision's not that hard, right? I mean, you might be bummed, but you're like, okay, I'll have the chocolate or I'll have the vanilla. It's a little difficult when you go into Baskin Robbins, right? Now there's 31 choices. Now they don't just have chocolate, they have dark chocolate, and they have mint chocolate, and they have chocolate cream, and they have chocolate and peanut butter, and then they have vanilla, and they have French vanilla, and they have homemade vanilla, and they have vanilla with strawberries. And now the conversation around which strawberry ice cream I want or which vanilla ice cream I want or which chocolate ice cream I want gets very difficult because the choices are now broadened. <laughs> and so as human beings, one of the things that we do is move things into simple categories so that the categories can choose for us. But reality is, is that this is a much more complex conversation. And when you read the scriptures, it's easy all at the same time. And so I'd like to have like a complex, easy conversation about this today. And what the scriptures inform us about this. In Leviticus 19.33, it says, When a foreigner or a sojourner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. See, what the scriptures call us to do is to take the sojourner, the outsider, the one who may not be a part of the majority culture, and to actually treat them in the same way that we would our own brother and sister, our own mom and dad, our own best friend. Now, some of you may say, I treat my parents horribly, and I treat my brothers and sister horribly. If that's the case, do not treat them like family. Treat them like someone you honor, all right? <laughs> But, but in other words, we are to create special value on those around us and to pull them into our lives as if they actually mattered like family. See, because the tendency is to look at those who are different than us and to step into a space where we may not recognize them or we make them the other over there. They're the other, and because they're the other, we may not actually recognize the struggle that they find themselves in. And in order to step into this space where we actually treat the sojourner as a brother and sister, as like family, we actually have to do something first that may seem very obvious, and that is to see them, to actually have eyes for the sojourner that is out there. See, the issue with the sojourner is that sociologists say that these people often becomes what sociologists call background people. They're different from us, and they're different from the majority culture around us, and because of that, they have very little value to the majority culture or what most of us are up to and how we enjoy life. We might even see them as a strain to our society or a strain to the status quo. And so because of that, we become blind to them. We as human beings, because we're like water and choose the path of least resistance, we tend to ignore what we don't understand. Because when we don't understand a culture 
or a community or a population or something that's different from us. It's too complex. It makes the choices now much more versatile. And so we just ignore it. And we, at best, are blind to them. At worst, we turn them into an enemy. And then it's really easy for them to get taken advantage of because not many people are actually seeing them let alone looking out for them in the world around us. See, I think one of the greatest gifts that Jesus gives us when we connect to him is his eyes, how he sees the world and how he sees people. See, because when you read the story of Jesus in the Gospels, he saw people that he shouldn't have seen, culturally at least. He's getting water from a well and he sees a Samaritan woman he, he should have not even seen her, let alone had a conversation with her, because that was off limits. And yet, he saw her and engaged in a really powerful space. He, he saw the leper, who was supposed to be physically outside of the city, and yet he found them. He, he saw those who were sexually scandalous and invited them into his community. He saw those who were filled with greed. He saw the oppressed. He saw the poor. He saw the blind and the disabled. And he engaged at a very powerful level. But he saw them. And here's the thing, he didn't just see them as categories. He didn't say Samaritan, disabled, leper, right? He, he, didn't, he didn't look at the world like that. He saw people as human beings, as people. And this gave him this supernatural ability to engage with them as people. I know it sounds crazy. <laughs> but this is how Jesus interacted with every single person he came in contact with. See, just like we do with our choices, it's so easy to put people into categories, it's so easy to say, well, they're in that group, and they're in that group, and, and they're going to be here, and I know exactly how they're going to operate. I know exactly what they think. I know exactly what they're about. And look, both sides of the political aisle do this and pressure us into the same space. One side looks at the outsider and says, they're a burden. They're looking for a handout. They're deviants. They're ruining our nation. The other side looks at the outsider and says, well, they're weak and they're incapable and they need to be handled with kids' gloves and we know exactly how they're supposed to think and we know exactly who they're going to vote for and if they do not follow these rules, they are not actually part of this group. And so we easily divide people into political categories and the categories are great because we know exactly how we're to operate with them, but it keeps us from actually seeing the person over there. And so we don't actually see the person, all we see is the category that we've placed them in over there. When Marla and I engaged as leaders the outbreaks of 2020 that had to do with race and science and gender and everything else surrounding that, Marla and I made this decision early on. We're just like, we got to put our ears to the ground and just listen for a while. We're not going to jump to quick action. We're just going to listen for a while. And so we talked to a lot of our Black and brown brothers and sisters, we talked to a lot of our gay brothers and sisters, we talked to people in a lot of different categories, and we found two things. That there were a lot of similarities in the stories. There were a lot of similarities in the suffering, which let us know that there was a very real need. But you know what we also found? There was a lot of differences. <laughs> we actually found that there was a lot of difference, and it, we were surprised at how many people said, please do not put me in a category. Please do not look at me as simply this box, but please see me as an individual. Which actually let us know, wow, we actually need to be looking out for the sojourner. And we also don't need to see the sojourner in clearly defined categories. Because that actually produces judgment and I don't actually get to see who's over there. 
See, when we come to Jesus, he gives us eyes to see those who society misses because everyone in society is attempting to put people in nice, neat categories that they're supposed to be in. What Jesus does when he gives us new eyes is he says, I would like for you to remove the boxes that society has placed people in to look deeper and actually see them as human beings with real needs, with real struggles, with real things that they need to overcome and and have support with. And here's the thing. When you see them, you're able to see, oh, there's a probability for injustice over there. There's a high probability for loneliness over there. There's a high probability for exhaustion or disconnection or heartbreak over there. And see, Jesus says, look, if you can actually remove the category, you can see that person over there and interrupt the need that they have to meet them in that moment. Now, you may be thinking, Nathan, this whole thing is a category, sojourner, right? (laughs) So so isn't that a category in and of itself? Are we not just putting people into categories of sojourner over there? Yes. But here's the thing. The way Jesus uses this category, the way the scriptures uses this category, is very different from the way our culture categorizes people. See, the category isn't there to be certain about who that person is. The category is not there to define them. The category is there to remind you that there is a temptation not to see them. The category is there to go, wake up. Your tendency is to not want to look at this person over there because they're different than you, because they don't speak the same language, or they don't have the same culture, or they don't have the same family structure, or they don't have the same desires, or they don't have the same way of engaging the world as you. And so when I look over there and go, oh, that is a sojourner, that is an outsider, that is the marginalized, that is the oppressed, I don't go category, I go listen and look and see. Because not only I am, am I tempted to forget them, but society around me is tempted to forget them as well, to write them off, to say, let them deal with whatever they need to deal over there. And in turn, we miss the very real needs that might not fit your nice little box over there. And it asks us to remove all of the preconceived notions that society asks us to place on the other, all of the things about their heart and their intentions and their character and their politics and just go, wow, that person over there might need some support in a special way, in a way that might be foreign to me. And how do I engage with them? Leviticus 19, 9 through 10 says this, when, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner, the sojourner, the outsider, the marginal, the oppressed. I am the Lord your God. See, in this moment, the outsider, the foreigner, the oppressed, the sojourner could not own land. And so in turn, they could not actually grow their own food. And because of that, there was very little money available to them because they also couldn't hold jobs. And so there was a very real tendency to take advantage of those who were there. They were at the mercy of other people's generosity. Now, the human norm in this moment would have said, I planted the grapes. They're mine. I own, I own them. And not only do I own them, but I deserve them. And so I'd leave nothing on the vine because I planted that, I did the work, I harvested them, that all belongs to me. But see, what Jesus and the scriptures invite us into is a new way of seeing not only the other, but our resources. See, because in the kingdom of heaven, what Jesus says is, hey, all of those resources that you have, all of them, 100% were a gift. And you are blessed. 
And so you now get to take the blessing that you have and bless other people. You now get to take the 100% that you have and take 90%, but you leave the 10% for the other because there's a tendency to not see them over there in the middle of all of this, to bless them. And in this, you see the sojourner first as a human being who is in need and as someone who is blessed, who can support them in their needs, someone worthy of not only our eyes but also our resources. Because once we see them, we can move beyond the category and then we can do what the scriptures call us to do, and that is to empathize with them. To actually live out what Romans 12, 15 through 16 says. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. You know, here's the crazy thing. In order to mourn with those who mourn, you actually have to enter into their pain. You actually have to say, I am willing to not only see you over there, but I'm willing to enter into the pain and suffering alongside of you. And we call this empathy, which is different from pity. See, because pity is self-righteous. Pity disconnects myself from the suffering. It allows me to stand at a superior position, detached from you over there, and pat you on the head and say, that's so sad. It's different from sympathy, even. Because sympathy feels bad for the other person which may be a step in the right direction, but it doesn't actually enter into the mourning because if I'm feeling bad for them, I'm not actually suffering with them, mourning with them in this space. See, empathy calls us into the suffering alongside them. In order to mourn with those who mourn, you actually have to be mourning. You actually have to be in a space where you see one another over there. See, and this is why treating the sojourner as family is so critical because if this was your brother or sister that was engaging this, if this was your mother or father or your child, my guess is that it would be much more difficult to disconnect yourself from the suffering over there. It would be much more difficult to say, that's their problem, not mine. I did the work. I got the money. It's mine. See, empathy opens up this whole new world of, of seeing the other so many immigrants that I have talked about who have immigrated to this community, they, they share about how many of them are even afraid to leave their house to go out into public because they're afraid to look foolish, either of their customs or their language. They don't want people to know that they, they're only speaking broken English. And so when they go even to the grocery store, they're afraid to speak with a cashier or they're afraid to ask someone for help. They don't know where their food is that they need in there. There's a fear of, of losing everything in any moment. And so they find themselves oftentimes in the moments of needing health care and the moments of needing support, not wanting to reach out because there's a real fear around, will I be disconnected from my family or will I never get to see the people I love Oftentimes they can't find work and so they find themselves taking multiple jobs or jobs that are too hard on their body and so they find themselves physically suffering trying to provide for their family. And then they can't even get the food that they long for and they can't call the police when they're taken advantage of because that might trigger all kinds of other legal ramifications. And so oftentimes life is a ball of anxiety and fear around even engaging the outside world for them. We, we've talked to a lot of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, especially for those who are attempting to follow some type of biblical sexual ethic. 
The church is too condemning already, and the world is too sexualized for them, and so they can't really find a space where they call home in the middle of that. And they're so used to the side looks that they find in the church that they wonder they belong here, and yet they're not really up for what the world has to offer in that community. And so they find themselves in the in-between, wondering, am I too feminine or too masculine? Do I go to the men's event or do I go to the women's event because I don't really fit in them? Wishing your whole life that you would be able to experience the world differently than these internal desires that you have inside of you. And then the struggle is made extreme by others, worse than anyone else's sin when it's discovered. And so there's a constant keeping of secrets that needs to be had and wondering, is my secret out and how much can I share and how much can I not share? For those who are in racial or cultural minorities, they're so oftentimes the weird one, the one with the weird hair, the one with the weird vernacular, the one with the weird clothes, the weird customs, not trying to be the stereotype while not trying to lose their culture. And then also wondering, when will my holidays be celebrated? Or when will my ways of relating to my family connect? Knowing that their holiday traditions aren't going to be celebrated this year in public, so home becomes the only place where they truly fit in. All the energy attempting to be like the majority culture, but also trying to hold on to the culture that's so important to them and their families around them. There's all kinds of other sojourners that we don't even think about, especially in the church. What about single people? We don't oftentimes think about those who are single in this way always being asked, hey, are you dating someone? Always being told, hey, I'm praying for your spouse out there. The shame of having to say no time after time after time. Explaining their choices as to why they are single. How many events are oftentimes just geared towards families with kids wondering if they'll ever find someone or wondering if they have value if they choose not to find someone in culture. See, we just don't recognize the suffering at times. And not that we need to elevate it above anyone else's suffering. We just tend to go, I don't understand that. That's not part of my experience. And so there's a tendency to be blind to the suffering over there. See, but what Jesus invites us into is to see them and to empathize, to mourn with those who mourn. And from that space, we can imagine the exhaustion, the confusion, the pain, the loneliness that comes along with this. And look, I know some of you don't have to because you experience it. And I know the church has done some brilliant things for the sojourner. There would not be hospitals and there would not be human rights work and there would not be all kinds of amazing programs around the world had it not been from the church. But I also know that the church has done a very poor job of recognizing these sojourners and the pain in there. And for that, I'm sorry. But this is why I think Jesus' example and the scripture's calling on our life to stop and see, to remove categories and to see that person over there and to recognize that there may be real needs over there, to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep is actually so critical. It ensures that the sojourner is not only seen, but they're loved. And that they're brought into a space where categories can be broadened around family where categories can be broadened around who is the outsider and who is the insider, where categories can be broadened around who has needs that can be met and get to be met and don't. I actually think that the church is one of the last few remaining environments where this can actually happen. I don't know many other places where this can actually take place. And look, the fact of the matter is, is that if you are a follower of Jesus, the scriptures 
call you a sojourner, that you are in this category yourself. 1 Peter 12, 2 through 11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live as such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. See, Jesus was actually called a stranger in a strange land, which actually translated as a sojourner in a strange land. That he did not belong here in this world because here's the thing. The ways of the kingdom of heaven do not actually make sense to the ways of the kingdom of this earth. And if we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, then those ways will not make sense. And it actually makes us sojourners. Over and over and over in the scriptures, it says that if you are a follower of Jesus, you, in some way, shape, or form, will be the outside. Because look, even the idea of loving your enemies is bizarre to the culture around us. Taking a look at those who are annoying and who we find judgments towards and releasing those so that we can press past those does not make sense. Even giving away of our financial resources and saying, I love you enough to be generous with what I have does not make sense to the human condition. And so if you are going to follow the ways of Jesus and how he loves, let alone the moral code that he asks us to engage in as human beings, you will find yourself as the outsider. And that is not some prophetic plea about being uh, like the outsider in the culture around us. This is just the reality that we find ourselves in. This is not saying, look, we are being persecuted. This is just the reality that we find ourselves in that if we follow these ways, where Jesus says, look, this is what's beautiful and this is what's destructive. This is what is right and good and this is what will ruin your soul. This is what leads you to wholeness and health and this is what doesn't. It will call you into a space where you are a sojourner in the world around you. People will look at you like you're crazy. That when you follow the code of Jesus and being human, you will be the outsider. Choosing the way of Jesus, the way of love, makes you a sojourner. And this will never be our home. So we understand in some small way the struggle of the outsider. We understand the heartbreak and the loneliness and the exhaustion of constantly engaging the world in a way that the world does not make sense. If anyone should empathize with the sojourner, it should be those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. And I want to close with this passage that Jesus gives us in Matthew 25, 30 through 40, 31 through 40, it says, When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, sojourner, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invited you in or needed clothes to clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. See, in case you missed it, there's a theme here in the scriptures, in this series around loving our neighbor. That loving that other person over there is just loving God himself in a different form. 
Not that that person is God, but that they represent an aspect of God. They are a created image bearer of God. And that when we love them and we see their needs and their struggles and their suffering, that we get to love God in a way that presses us beyond what we prefer. That presses us on what's com- beyond what's comfortable. It presses us beyond what we understand. And as we look out for the sojourners in our lives and we see and we empathize and we choose love, we are those who say no image bearer gets left behind. That no one gets to be treated less than the divine carrier of the image of God himself. No one gets treated less than. And so we are those who engage and we see and we empathize and we mourn and we intervene with love. Look, I know that there's a lot of buts that come with this conversation. I actually thought, should we have this conversation? Because doing this conversation in 30 minutes seems very risky. But we did it anyways, right? There's a lot of buts that come with this. But what about illegal immigration? And what about economic issues? And what about border crises? And what about biblical sexual ethics? And what about facts and data? I get all of that. For whatever reason, at times, we feel like we have to choose between love and our politics or our theology. And that is not a choice that God or anyone else invites us into. For whatever reason, we feel like we have to choose between the help. So if this helps calm some nerves, this talk was not about how you should vote or not. This wasn't even really about the morality of politics in the middle of this. I actually have very little interest in that conversation. Look, I I know we live in a world where both sides have decided that we should convert our mandate to love into an executive order so that we don't have to anymore. We would rather say, hey, could you just legislate this for me so that I can get out of the burden of loving my neighbor, of loving my enemy, of loving the sojourner? Could the government just do this for me? I know that that is the natural tendency. But my plea this morning is the same plea that I believe Jesus had. And that is this, please love in a new way, in a supernatural way that goes beyond your own preferences and your own wants and desires, but that connects to the God of the universe that sees every human being as just that, as a human created uniquely in his image. Because when you see a group of people as image bearers, as a talking point, it will change everything. Because they're no longer just the talking point. They're no longer just the category. They are crafted over there. And yes, truth must always travel with love. And we live in a world where love equals complete agreement. That I have to agree with you on everything. And you have to agree with me in order to be loved. And I actually don't think that that's what love looks like in any way, shape, or form. Here's what I think needs to happen is that love just has to travel a little faster than truth. Not that they can't be separated from one another. But that love just has to travel first. And then we can introduce truth alongside of it. But if we have to choose between the two, it's a choice that Jesus does not invite you into. See, love causes us to see the world as it was designed to be in spite of the way that it is. And then in that, we get to provide a new song for humanity to sing, a new way of relating to one another, a new way of gauging in this. And what it says is, look, we may have differences, 
And I may have all kinds of different ideas around how we should order the political sphere and how things need to happen economically. And I have all kinds of lofty ideas around what needs to happen over here. And there's really important foundational conversations around morality and the life that God calls us to live and the truth that he calls us to step into. But the thing that you need to know first about me and my God is that you are loved, period. And that I see you and that I will be the one who mourns with you when you mourn. See, I, I think we can say this because we have a God who was so willing to do this for us. That while we were the outsider, while we were the one disconnected and wandering away, and while we were the one who was separated from the majority culture of heaven, Jesus looked out at us and says, I choose you. In all of your mess, in all of your craziness, I can't believe you're doing half the things that you're doing over there. That's crazy. But I love you. And I would love to invite you in to this family known as the community of God, the church. And that he said, you know what, I I'm going to actually go the extra step and I will die for you. I will die so that you no longer have to be at least a sojourner in your soul. But that you can be connected to the whole. And that in that we are made new and transformed and invited into a new way of living. And so we ought to be those who see and empathize with the sojourner and bring them in because we are recipients of that kind of love. And we get to be those that give it away. Which is why today we're going to do something really exciting, and that is baptize people, which I'm very, very excited about. And baptism is, is really simple. It's just a declaration that... I am dying to my old ways and I am being raised up. It's this water grave that's a beautiful image that's been used from the beginning of this movement known as the church. There's nothing magical in that moment. It's literally just people publicly declaring, I have been made new. It's essentially saying, look, I was once a spiritual sojourner. I was once disconnected on the outside. I was the one who, who was oppressed and burdened and in the dark. And now I have been brought into this new family, this new life, and I have been made new. And there is something so beautiful about that. And so we're going to baptize some people today. And this morning, if you're here and you have not yet connected to Jesus, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that here in just a minute. To pray a prayer. There's nothing magical about it. It's just an opportunity to say, look, I'm in. I want to follow this Jesus who has given his life for me. And if you've never been baptized, we would love for you to get baptized today. You probably weren't planning on that today. But if you would like to, we have everything ready for you. We've taken away all the excuses. We have shirts. We have shorts in all sizes. We have towels. We have water. We're good to go. And we would love to have you get baptized today. So even right now, if you're like, man, I've never been baptized and this, this God who, who calls the outsider in, who, who sees those who are oppressed or marginalized and, and longs for them to be in, I'm in with that God because I recognize my own need to be brought into the family of God. This is your moment. So if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes and bowing your heads, and this morning, if you're here and you have not yet connected to Jesus, maybe, maybe you've been connected to him in, in a distant way or you haven't been connected to him in a long time, this is your moment. If that's you, I'd love for you just to look up at me because I want to pray with you this morning. And I want you to just pray this prayer to yourself silently. There's, no, there's not magic words. You can just pray, dear Jesus, I give you my life. I know that there is darkness within me. 
and you came and you died and you rose back to life so that that darkness could be dispelled within me, so that I could have life new. And so I make you my Lord. I give you everything. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope that it was a meaningful experience and look forward to having you listen in next week for another conversation from the heart and soul of Humanity Church. You can find more information about our community at www.humanitychurch.com.